0: They think, well, of course, it's we're doing this for good purposes. And so why do we even have to think about the bad things that could happen? We don't need to go there. Um, but we do need to go there.
1: And one of the things he showed was a video of a realistic image of a politician saying something that that politician didn't actually say. And then somebody said, well, you know, do you think that will ever be used for some ill purpose at some point in the future?
0: the don't be evil has its sort of parallel in medicine, but the move fast and break things definitely does not.
2: Welcome to Entrepreneurship and Ethics, a special mini-series we're presenting on the Stanford Innovation Lab podcast. I'm Professor Tom Byers, and I teach entrepreneurship in Stanford's School of Engineering. For the past two decades, I've taught my students how to turn their ideas into actual ventures. But over the past few years, a string of Silicon Valley scandals has bothered me. So I'm putting together a series of conversations about ethics and entrepreneurship. Today, I'm speaking with two Stanford colleagues, Mildred Cho and John Mitchell. Mildred is a professor of pediatrics at Stanford and the associate director of Stanford's Center for Biomedical Ethics. And John is the chair of Stanford's large and influential computer science department. In this conversation, we'll explore how efforts in the fields of medicine and computer science can help shape ethics training for entrepreneurs and innovators of all kinds one note before we get started this conversation was recorded before COVID 19 and the protest and activism sparked by the murder of george floyd so mildred let's start with you this podcast is all about finding better ways of teaching entrepreneurial students how to build ethical frameworks for themselves So can you talk a little bit about your own background and give us a sense of what medical ethics training looked like in your own career and education?
0: Well, so my background is actually in the biological sciences. That's how I was originally trained. But I did come to biomedical ethics because of ethical questions that were raised in the course of doing biomedical research. So even back when I was an undergraduate, I was doing work in the lab that will now date me on recombinant DNA. And at the time, the city of Cambridge actually had a moratorium, put a moratorium on that research because of fears of genetic engineering. And so that got me interested in the the policy and the ethics around laboratory research. But I think what's sort of useful maybe for us to be talking about in terms of how that is related to entrepreneurship and innovation, is that we have a very strong framework for medical ethics. Because as everyone has probably heard, there's sort of principles like do no harm that are the foundation of medical ethics. But there's not a very strong, similar kind of foundation for doing research or doing um, innovation. Um, And that's partly because the kinds of ethics that we talk about in medicine are really about the sort of fundamental assumptions about the role of a physician. And we don't have similar parallel fundamental assumptions about what the societal role of entrepreneurs are and what, uh, what researchers are.
2: Well, it's really great to have you here in this conversation, John. Can you talk about how ethics uh, and the questions of ethics have intersected with your career?
1: Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, let me give you a few examples. Uh, I think many people in computer science and, and related technologies, you know, have some questions around who's funding your work and are you in, on, on board with what the potential applications of a research or a research and development activities might be. Uh, that can be questions about a company. What are they going to do with something that I, I build or design with, with my students for them? So we all have to think about that. It's very hard to tell what the applications may be, uh, but that's a kind of question everyone faces. Uh, I've worked for some number of years in the field of cybersecurity. Uh, that's one where We look at good and bad things and how they occur in a digital environment. Uh, Perhaps surprisingly for for those of you who aren't in the field, uh, one of the most basic things is we need to study attacks and defenses. We don't know how to defend against attacks unless we know how to carry out a cyber attack. We say the course is how do you defend your system, but really people get excited about how to attack things, break into systems, find information that's hidden in some way. And with regard to attacks, we always have this ethical disclosure principle. If we find a vulnerability in a system or a way that somebody can do harm with it, we always want to report that to the vendor, the producer of the system, give them time to make a repair before we make it public so other people don't uh, take advantage of the attack that we found. So there are some ethical principles in the field of cyber security around that. Maybe I'll just mention briefly one example around the the area of privacy, which I worked on for some period of time. Uh, In studying web tracking, how how the big companies track what you do online, uh, we found uh, a large company, uh, Google, that had done something that seemed a little bit surreptitious in order to defeat a privacy mechanism that was widely accepted. Uh, our discovery led to what was then the largest fine against any company for privacy violation. Uh, But we weren't sure how to proceed with this kind of thing that we found. It wasn't an attack, the kind of thing we're used to finding in security. We had to think about it a little bit differently. And we decided that we should first notify uh, Google to let them tell us whether we were right or not and simultaneously kind of keep records of our correspondence so that we could uh, really report the the situation to others if we felt that was necessary. We ended up going to the newspaper and, and it was a, a fun story for all except perhaps uh, so few people at Google.
2: Let's dive into a, some of the newer things happening in both your disciplines and then see how they're intersecting. Can you give some examples, John, uh, of ethical dilemmas that computer science students face once they enter their
1: careers. I think one of the most basic decisions that people make when they study a field is, you know, what area of the field, what subject area, what topics would they like to work on, you know. And, and I think it's important for people to think about the consequences. If you want to, if you're interested in robotic surgery, you'll feel one way about it. If you're interested in basic algorithms for graphs, you have a, have another set of issues. Uh, people need to choose a topic area where they're comfortable with its applications and implications. Uh, later, when someone goes in and w- uh, takes a job in a company, a specific role in that, you know, there's a question. Do I agree with what the aims of this company or organization are? And specifically, if you're going to adopt a role, you're going to be in charge of a certain kind of activity. Is that something you believe in or not? Do you have qualms about it? And if so, what what would you do? One of the complications is that many small and projects in large companies pivot at some point. You're started out trying to do one thing, Turns out not to work quite as well as you hoped, so maybe you can take the ideas you've developed and use them for another, another purpose. So one quote I thought I'd mention just because I, I liked it so much is a, from Alex Stamos, who resigned from Facebook over some principles, uh, was the guest lecturer, has been the guest lecturer in our computer security class for, for a number of years. And one of the things he advocates to students, if you're going to go into the cybersecurity field, first decide your ethical principles and then build your career around that.
2: Mildred, let's talk about how new technologies are impacting your world of biomedical ethics.
0: I think one of the challenges now is that uh, medical innovation is starting to require collaboration across disciplines and across cultures. So going out of the medical culture and moving into the tech culture where, you know, you have mottos that range from, you know, don't be evil to move fast and break things. And neither of those are really, you know, I mean, the, the the don't be evil has its sort of parallel in medicine, but the move fast and break things definitely does not. So I think um, what John said is really um, worth taking to heart in the sense that I think when people are coming from this medical ethical framework that um, is really, that underlies everything they do, and then they're having to kind of collaborate with people who don't come from that background at all they have to really um, understand how those kinds of collaborations might create value clashes and what they're and think through ahead of time what are you going to do when you have when you identify a position which um, is causing this value clash what are you going to do about that I think another um, way that sort of, Technology is maybe making some sort of difference. Is that there's increasing situations that arise uh, that are kind of parallel to what you were talking about, John, in terms of um, sort of uh, teaching people about attacks and defenses. And it's this concept of dual use. So every technology can be used for good and used for bad. And um, that's something that's a concept that, in medical research and innovation is not really grappled with at a very fundamental level because everybody's coming again from this medical background where they think well of course it's we're doing this for good purposes and so why do we even have to think about the bad things that could happen we don't need to go there um, but we do need to go there there's always new technologies that are raising new ethical issues like and you've seen them in the news like gene editing and the CRISPR babies in China and, and so forth. Um, and so for the CRISPR babies example, there was already a uh, pretty wide, worldwide consensus that that was not a cool thing to do. But there's sort of more, less splashy things but are are really sort of really difficult to grapple with uh, in terms of ethics and teaching ethics and, and it's sort of slow underlying social changes that – and sort of institutional changes. So one example is that um, the lines between clinical practice and research and innovation are now very blurred. And those are sort of areas that have their own ethical frameworks, and they're not the same. So that's a challenge. And another one is sort of this change uh, that we're seeing, where we now have something called citizen science and do-it-yourself biology, um, and we don't have an ethical framework for that. Injecting yourself with new things that you made in your in your basement, which might cause broader population health effects. So those are sort of the the sort of things that we need to understand better how to grapple with at our our Center for Biomedical Ethics and many others like us, we are thinking about sort of the ramifications um, to ethics for having, you know, as a society created this thing we call the learning healthcare system, um, where basically all the clinical data that is generated on a minute-by-minute basis in hospitals is now intended to feed back into a sort of data analytics system that is now used for research purposes. Um, So yeah, there's a lot more thinking about that, but the answers are not necessarily keeping up with the, the demand.
2: I was curious to learn more about some specific classes and projects that have advanced ethics training for computer scientists and biomedical researchers. To kick off that conversation, John started by giving a brief history of how ethics became part of Stanford's computer science curriculum. He also talked about CS 182, a new Stanford computer science course called Ethics, Public Policy, and Technological Change. That class has been making waves on campus, and has even received some well-deserved attention from the national media.
1: I think we started having courses on ethics in the computer science department in the 1980s. I think the early version was taught by Terry Winograd, who's a computer scientist, and uh, my friend and collaborator, Helen Nissenbaum, who has a uh, Ph.D. in philosophy and and is really interested in uh, laws and principles and ethics. So the ideas have been uh, with us for decades. Uh, One of the things that's changed is – uh, the sense of importance and the evidence of impact. So the recent kind of realization of the impact of uh, digital and other technology on on our daily lives has really uh, put things into into sharper focus and made us more concerned about it. So on following from you know the early sequence of of courses in ethics, many of which have been have been excellent. We have now a much higher profile, bigger effort that's cross-disciplinary, the ethics course uh, 182 that you mentioned is taught by Rob Reisch, who's an ethicist and philosopher uh, in the political science department, Mehran Sahami, who's uh, one of our most popular teachers of programming and computer science, uh, and Jeremy Weinstein, who has a long experience in politics and government service and, and the political process. So the three of them together really have a, have a broader view, an interesting sophisticated view about how technology interacts with ethical problems and the consequences of decisions. And they've produced this course that I I think is really excellent. Uh, there's a number of different units looking at different kinds of technology algorithmic decision making autonomous systems uh, data collection issues uh, private platforms and and their interaction with the public sphere but in each one of these things there's an uh, effort to look at the technology, to engage computer scientists in the class and building some elements of that technology, and then carrying out a debate that looks at the implications, the kind of questions that would face someone working in that field, and and some of the upsides and downsides of, of making uh, different kinds of choices around those topics.
2: Yeah, yeah and Mildred, there's a course uh, in bioengineering that is, I believe, is required um, that is Pretty famous with David Magnus and Russ Altman, I believe, uh, as the faculty members, uh, the ethics of bioengineering. So a number of my students brought my attention to that as well.
0: The whole idea of it is that, first of all, it's being team-taught by somebody who's from computer science and biomedical informatics, that's Russ, and then someone from biomedical ethics, that's David. And I think that that sort of that concept of bringing people together again across disciplines is really useful. And part of learning about the ethics is understanding sort of how do other people think about these issues uh, and how do I think about them and how How are we different and the same in how we think about these these ethical issues? To kind of surface the differences in culture and values that each person comes to the table with.
1: Something you something you said, Mildred, made me uh, suddenly very envious. I talked about who's teaching our ethics course and what fields they come from, and you talked about who's teaching the ethics course you're familiar with, and you referred to someone coming from biomedical ethics. The way we speak as academics, that implies there's a defined field of biomedical ethics. I'd like to say this is taught by someone from the field of computational ethics, but we don't have one yet.
2: Stanford's Center for Biomedical Ethics was founded in 1989. The center drives research on issues like genomics, cultural diversity, and neuroscience. And the center's faculty train many of Stanford's pre-med and medical students in bioethics. John and I were especially inspired by one particular project, the Bench Side Consultation Service, that they've been running for the past 13 years.
0: Actually, so we have this ethics consultation service for researchers in biomedical research. It it is open to not just people at Stanford, but to tech companies or pharma and biotech. And we have done probably almost half of our consults for industry uh, folks. And this is the source, actually, of a lot of our – that feeds a lot of our thinking on how to – teach people about ethical issues because the it's sort of um, people sort of are voting with their feet to come to our ethics consultation service. And so it gives us an indication of what kinds of ethical issues are bothering people enough to reach out to us. And it's led to uh, collaborations and um, you know the ability to uh, sort of form a community of people who are interested in um, teaching about ethics.
2: Do you think something like that would work uh, more broadly?
1: Could could we possibly do that? Could we set up a hotline for digital? Technology ethics. What 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 kind of calls would we get, and what on what basis could we offer any advice at all? Do you have any suggestion? What if we were going to try to do that? Would we just well, get ourselves in trouble instantly,
0: or is there no? A I think positive it would be, I think it would be a great idea because I know that there is a demand out there. Mm-hmm. Right. And you've seen this with companies like um, Google and some of the large tech companies around here trying to set up their own internal ethics departments. And that hasn't gone very well. Um, So I think that there is a value and I think our value in having our center providing research ethics services at Stanford is we can be an independent voice. We're outside of any one institution or company. Um, we have a little distance there. We can provide technical expertise. So I think it would be a great idea.
1: I was thinking about ethical dilemmas as you were saying that. And somehow I remembered a person who interviewed for a job in our department. Could have been 15 years ago or more. And one of the things he showed was a video of a realistic, image of a politician saying something that that politician didn't actually say. And we thought, oh, that's amazing. And then somebody said, well, you know, do you think that will ever be used for some ill purpose at some point in the future? And we all thought, well, think of how much computing time it took to produce this. At that time, that was an unrealistic thing for someone to do on a home computer or or individually. It took a huge bank of of computing machines in a research lab in order to do that. So we kind of dismissed that. But, you know, later on, you know, that turned out to be a, a big phenomenon on in uh you know the world we live in today so there's really interesting question of when do you call the hotline when do you see that this is really heading in a in a, in a direction that you don't like? And of
2: course i'm over here thinking of it do we need such a thing for startups because they do not have hr departments the hr department is the founder or one of the founders um and who do you call Entrepreneurship educators like myself have the most influence over the students who are still in our classes. So training those students in ethical thinking should always be priority number one. But if we can also scale resources for practicing entrepreneurs and innovators, it will help our students down the line. Once they're out in the wild, building careers and enterprises. It's interesting to consider how best we can play that role. We want to help all employees and entrepreneurs think through the ethical consequences of the technologies they're discovering and developing. Well, it's so fascinating that these two worlds, uh, on one hand, Mildred's your world of uh, medicine and John's yours of computer science are converging. They've been converging for quite a while, but it seems that we're at this special moment as we enter into the 2020s. so let's, though, let's make it personal, I and mean, we're educators, and I, I'm just thinking about these students that we get to be around uh, every day. We get a, a good window into the future, and we ha- you know, can have a little bit of impact on it. Let's think about them, um, especially in the medical and, and technology areas. What's your greatest hope for that generation to keep in mind as they, as they do their thing? as they start their careers?
1: I think it's it's fascinating to see all the fresh, inquisitive minds that that arrive on campus. I'm teaching a freshman seminar this quarter on blockchain technology and its potential implications. The first-year students are, are surprisingly sophisticated about both the technology and, and how it, it can be uh, impactful. And I've really been encouraged by the initial round of projects we've done on on implications, people have looked at healthcare, uh, speeding up clinical trials, uh, improving travel, making voting more reliable, and I, I'm I'm really uh, hopeful and, and confident that uh, the students will look forward to, uh, you know, doing good, positive things in the world. And if we can help them, you know, have tools that that will be effective to that that end, that that would be great.
0: Yeah, so I think in reading about the the tech lash, I was actually more optimistic in some ways that there is this tech lash. And it is coming from the young people who are being critical and thinking critically about what they're doing and why they're doing it. I've been able to reach out to students to get them to help us think about um, how we turn sort of these concepts of ethics into real Um, toolkits that that students can use on a daily basis in their own work.
2: At the outset, I've mentioned that this conversation was recorded before the onset of COVID-19 and the powerful protest and activism sparked by the murder of George Floyd. One thing that strikes me now is that John and Mildred's students were already focused on projects that speak directly to the current moment speeding up clinical trials without compromising medical ethics is at the core of the fight against COVID-19. And it's great to hear that some of our future computer scientists are already asking how the technologies they create might advance economic empowerment and trustworthy voting systems. It's become painfully obvious lately how our worst assumptions about race become embedded in the systems we create. It gives me great hope To hear that some of our future technologists are intent on creating technologies and enterprises that reflect admirable values. If you're interested in exploring the connections between race and bioethics in particular, Stanford's Center for Biomedical Ethics has been pointing folks to the Black Bioethics Toolkit on bioethics.net. We'll include the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Stanford Innovation Lab podcast to stay in the loop on future episodes. And feel free to review us or give us some stars to help us reach more listeners with this conversation about entrepreneurial ethics. The Stanford Innovation Lab podcast is a Stanford eCorner original series. The videos, podcasts, and articles on Stanford eCorner are designed to help innovators and educators cultivate entrepreneurial mindsets and make a positive, lasting impact. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. This episode was produced by Luke Saikora and Rachel Jolkowski for Stanford eCorner and edited by Katie Fernelius. Daniel Stusi is our Designer and Digital Products Manager. Our Growth Marketing Specialist is Nora Khada. And I'm Tom Byers. Thanks for listening.